Well, graduates, those of you who are uh, not too exhausted to come this morning, I think this is pretty much your last stop on your graduation weekend, on your special weekend, which means after we say amen here in just a few minutes, like you go back to being just a regular person like the rest of us, okay, except you're a regular person that has a, a huge stack of thank yous that you have to write. Uh, other than that, you're regular after this, normal. I hope you had a good time. hope you had a memorable time yesterday. And, and I, I noticed I said good and memorable because those are not always the same thing. Um, not all memorable times are good. For example, I read this this week. Here's a, a woman named Amanda Walker. Don't know who she is, but she wrote about her uh, high school graduation. She certainly remembers it, um, though I don't think fondly. She graduated from a great big high school where they had to have uh, an outdoor ceremony on the football field, and the, the, you know, the stands were filled. And as it was her turn on that windy day, they announced her name, Amanda Walker. And as she walked along the edge of the stage to uh, get her diploma, a huge gust of wind came up and blew her gown and her dress around her shoulders right after they announced her name. Uh, and that was her uh, memorable graduation experience. So I'm sure you had a better day than Amanda Walker did yes, uh, yesterday. And for your graduation, graduates, with you in mind, this is going to be a graduation sermon. I wanted to walk through Psalm 63 with you. It is a, it's a great psalm, a very famous psalm. It's a beautiful psalm written by King David. And I am convinced that inside Psalm 63, there is something of a cheat code for life. And if you don't know what a cheat code is, I'm not advocating cheating of any kind. Um, I'll let a young person explain to you what that is. But there's something like a secret to life in this psalm that will keep you from being crushed by life's disappointments. It will make your hopes sort of buoyant. And, and I want that for you, graduates. And so I challenge you especially to, to pay special attention. But I want that for the rest of you also. So I challenge everyone else here to pay special attention as we walk through Psalm 63. I would invite you to open that in a Bible. There's a black Bible underneath a, a chair in front of you. If you open one of the pew Bibles, it's on page 587. Keep your finger there because we're going to refer back to that page later in the sermon. Psalm 63, written by David, page 587 in a, in a pew Bible. And I'll be reading from the New American Standard, which is what those pew Bibles are. Psalm 63 in our English Bibles, what is verse 1, begins this way. O God, you are my God. I shall seek you earnestly. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh yearns for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Thus I have seen you in the sanctuary. I've seen your power and your glory. Because your loving kindness is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. I will lift up my hands in your name. My soul is satisfied as with marrow and fatness. 
and my mouth offers praises with joyful lips. When I remember you on my bed, I meditate on you in the night watches, for you have been my help. In the shadow of your wings, I sing for joy. Verse 8, my soul clings to or pursues you. Your right hand upholds me. But those who seek my life to destroy it will go into the depths of the earth. They'll be delivered over to the power of the sword. They will be a prey for foxes or jackals. But the king will rejoice in God. And everyone who swears by God will glory. The mouths of those who speak lies, lies will be stopped. That is a, a poem. It's a song written by, by one man about his, his longing and his need for God. It's, it really is beautiful, and I want to honestly go very quickly through that. But before I do, do you know what Maslow's hierarchy of needs is? I don't know, graduates, if you took a psychology class or something, if you go to college, you take some psychology courses or especially human growth and development or something like that, you'll run into Maslow's hierarchy of needs. It's an imperfect uh, little hierarchy. Without, it's not without its faults, but the idea was this. Abraham Maslow said, until you have the bottom step in this hierarchy taken care of, you won't move on to concerning yourself with the next step. And until you have both of those taken care of, you won't move on and concern yourself with the next step. It works like this. The bottom rung is physiological needs. Things like having enough food, having water, having warmth, getting sleep. If you don't have those things, you really can't care about anything else. And until you, but when you have those things, then you can move on to the next step, he said, was safety needs, feeling secure in your surroundings and feeling safe. Um, and until you have those two taken care of, you won't worry about friendships and, and, and uh, belonging needs. Things like, this is why we have like free and reduced breakfast programs at school, because a kid doesn't care about his times tables if he doesn't have, if he's still hungry. Well, the reason I show you that is because even though David wrote Psalm 63 approximately 3,000 years before Abraham Maslow made that, David says something interesting at the beginning of Psalm 63. He tells God, God, you are my baseline need. You're the bottom of my hierarchy. The way most people need a drink when they're in the desert, that's the way I need you. Like, you're the bottom rung of my concerns. And again, we're just going to go quickly through this song. That's the first thing he says. It's a song about, a poem about how he needs God like most people need water. In verses 2 through 4, David says, the things you have done for me in the past, God, are what make me worship you in the present. So I need you like most people need water. And I, from what I've already seen you do, what I've already seen you do makes me like that. David says in verse 2 that he has seen God. I've seen you in the sanctuary. I've seen your power and your glory. I don't think David is talking about visibly seeing some visible manifestation of God. For him, the sanctuary was the tabernacle. 
the tent of meeting. We don't have any evidence in the Bible that David ever saw the pillar of uh, smoke or the pillar of fire or the Shekinah glory or any of these things. I think here's what David would have seen and what he's talking about here. I think David is saying, I've seen evidence that you have forgiven me. When David went to church, what we would call church, he went to the tabernacle and the service that happened there, the centerpiece of that service would have been animal sacrifices. And David, who knew he was a sinful guy, David would, bring, would have brought animals and he would have watched as he confessed, he would place his hand on the head of an animal, confess his sins, symbolically transferring his sins onto that animal. And when a priest killed that animal, it symbolized God punishing something else for David's sin. And at the end of that ceremony, the priest would pronounce the benediction, you know, may God be with you. And you it, he would see evidence that he had been restored to God. That's what David had seen, how God, had, David had seen God use his power in the sanctuary. You know, for you and me, and for David, God's power should be aimed at us like a double-barreled shotgun of God's wrath. That's what should be, that's what God should use his power to do, is punish the living daylights out of us. But God by faith, allowed those who would believe him and trust him. He allowed our sins to be put on a sacrifice and his wrath to be poured out on a sacrifice. For us, it's not an animal. For us, that was what Jesus did at the cross. And David says in verse 2, I've seen you use your power to punish something else besides me and restore me to you. And that is why, verse 3 David says, my lips are going to praise you forever. Why? Because your loving kindness, your Bible might translate it loyal love. There's a Hebrew word right there, chesed. It's really fun to say. Try it. Ready? Chesed. Do it. If you have some scrambled eggs left right back there, this is a good time to get it out. Go right on the head of the person in front of you. If you say this hard enough, it'll be great. Chesed. Chesed. There it is. What chesed is, David says, your chesed is the, is, the, is the marriage, the union of love and loyalty. It's, it's loyal, unending love. David said, even though I'm a sinful guy, and by the time he writes this, he's been caught in all kinds of sins. But you, you are so loyal and loving. You use your power to forgive me instead of your power punish me. So he says, I'm going to bless you as long as I live. I'm going to lift up my hands in your name, which for David would have been, would have been prayer. In verse 5, because he's seen that, David says, my soul is satisfied in God. And this is really cool. Um, he says, you ever been really, really hungry? And when you were really, really hungry, had a really good meal you ever experienced that? There's a special kind of satisfaction in the old tum-tum when that happens, right? Well, David uses a couple of words here. The New American translates them marrow and fatness that are usually used to describe good meat. We might say this, my soul is satisfied as with well-marbled, grade-A, prime 
meet. There's a special, David says, God, and he's in a dry and weary land where there's no water. There's also no meat. You make my soul feel like my belly feels after a great big steak. The poetic way of saying, I get my satisfaction from you, God. Quickly through the rest of the psalm, in verses 6 and 7, David remembers the times God has protected him. In verse 8, David says, really what David says here is that uh, he pursues God diligently. I know this says clings. Uh, there's, a, there's a Hebrew word right in here in verse 8 that's used throughout the Old Testament to describe one army pursuing a fleeing army. So this cling is like stick to somebody, like stay hot on their heels sort of cling. David says, because of all the stuff I've said, I'm going I'm to chase you, God. I'm going to pursue you and stick right on your heels my whole life. And in the rest of the psalm, David says, basically, uh, David gets the, the hope and the promise to depend on and get joy out of God's eventual victory right now today, even though he hasn't experienced it yet. He knows he will get to share in God's victory someday. And those who won't pursue God, don't. In verse 11, David speaks of himself in the third person. He says, all this is why the king, I will rejoice in God. And that's Psalm 63 very briefly. And we really could, we really could end there. Now, unfortunately for you, I won't. But we could. I mean, we could just say, pursue, desire God like a thirsty dude desires water. Or revel in his forgiveness pursue him. Now, that'd be a good graduation message on its own, right? Those who, who pursue and do these things will share in God's victory someday. But where I've intentionally skipped something that I think sort of unlocks the secret of this psalm, sort of unlocks the, the, that cheat code that I talked about. It's from the very beginning. If you still have that open, put your finger on the very first word of this psalm. Go back to the beginning here. And if you have your finger right now, where you logically would, right here at verse 1 in our English Bibles, Oh God, you are my God, I want you to know you're, forget, you're missing, you're skipping the first part of the song. If you have uh, something that, like, that looks like a big title, that was added, it's probably in italics in your, in your Bible, and we have different ones. But then there's something that looks like a subtitle, in your Bible, in the New American, it says this, a Psalm of David written when he was in the wilderness of Judah. Do you see that? All of our Bibles have that. You know why? That's in the Hebrew. David wrote that. In fact, if you had a, a Masoretic text, a Hebrew Bible open, this is verse one right here. And, and the verses are one off from our English Bibles. Here's why that's important. David wrote this when he was in the wilderness of Judah. Now, he wasn't camping. He wasn't visiting. 
If you know the, the historical sections of the Old Testament, especially the parts that tell us of David's life, we can tell there, there were only two seasons of David's life where he spent time out in the wilderness of Judah. And he was on the run, afraid for his life, both times. The first one, when he was a younger man, there was a guy named Saul that was king of Israel. And Saul was very jealous of David and had made it very clear that he wanted to kill David. David's first hint was when he threw a spear and it stuck into the wall beside David. That's a pretty clear indication the king's not happy with you. Uh, And David ran and hid in caves in the wilderness of Judah. It's a desert. It's not a vacation spot. He he lived in caves like Al-Qaeda, being chased by the Americans, only the good guy was the opposite. This wasn't written, I don't believe, during that time. And the hint is in verse 11, David calls himself the king. When David was running and hiding from King Saul, David wasn't the king and he knew he wasn't the king. That's why he wouldn't kill Saul, even though Saul was trying to kill David. Who am I to kill the Lord's anointed, the king? So there's one other time in David's life when he was on the run for his life and he he lived in the wilderness of Judah in this dry and weary land where there is no water. And I want to just tell you that just the, uh, the quick version of that story because it's kind of a long story. Um, it shows up in, in 2 Samuel 13 through 19, all those chapters. We, you don't have to turn there, but if you want to read that later. It's one of the more heartbreaking stories in the whole Bible. It's a really terrible story. Um, David had to abdicate the throne, step down off the throne and leave Jerusalem because he thought he was going to be killed. And the reason that happened was because of David's own mistakes and weaknesses and the mistakes and weaknesses and sins of his immediate family. And he was actually on the run, afraid his own son would kill him or have him killed. Here's the story. One of David's weaknesses, sins. David uh, tended to pursue people of the opposite sex quite uh, intensely. And he had many, many wives and took many concubines and nothing good ever happened from that in the Bible. Uh, I say this a lot, especially when we're studying Genesis. If you read the Old Testament of somebody having multiple wives and God never comes out and like calls them out on it, and you read that as an excuse for that being okay, if that's the conclusion you reach from reading those, you don't know how to read a story because it never, nothing good ever comes from it. Uh, so that was one of David's weaknesses. And so he had all these kids from different women and they didn't always get along so good. One such occasion, he had a son named Amnon. And Amnon, this is a family service, so I'll say Amnon... Uh, really got the hots for one of his sisters, uh, half-sister. So they both were children of David. Her name was Tamar. Amnon and Tamar had different moms. And Tamar, excuse me, Amnon got the hots for Tamar, and he, he forced himself upon her again, family service. And then he tossed her out. And David, their dad, didn't respond passive. And Tamar had a full brother, same mom and same dad. His name was Absalom. And Absalom was furious 
at his half-brother Amnon for what he did to his sister. And he was furious at their dad for not doing anything about it. So Absalom, he took his sister Tamar into his house and took care of her. And he nursed this anger and this grudge. And later on, when the time was right, Absalom had his, his brother Amnon murdered at his order. And then he ran away thinking, surely dad will do something about murder one brother to another. And what we read in 2 Samuel is David, even though his heart wanted to go out to Absalom, he wanted to do something to bring some reconciliation in his family, he didn't. Years went by, he finally sent word to Absalom, uh, sent a messenger that you can come back to Jerusalem and I won't do anything you know, safely, you can, you, I won't do anything to hurt you. And Absalom came back to Jerusalem, but David basically just ignored him and ignored the whole situation. And Absalom still had this grudge against his dad. And he set himself up as judge over Jerusalem. Dad didn't do anything about that. And he began he, this, whole, this self-appointed position. He began to undermine his father, the king's authority. Basically, over and over and over, hearing these cases and telling people stuff like this. You know, I think you've been really uh, dealt a hard deal here, and, and you wouldn't have this problem if I was king. You know, this whole problem is because my dad's king, and he really doesn't know what he's doing. If I was king, things would be better for you over and over and over and over until Absalom had this huge following and even a military following. And all of a sudden, David wakes up and realizes, if I don't run away, my own son is going to murder me and take the throne. And so he abdicates the throne and he runs away. And I'll give you one guess where David ran away to. The wilderness of Judah. And I'll give you one more guess of one thing he sat down and wrote while he was out there. Psalm 63. Now, why is that background important? Well, put yourself in David's shoes. You used to be the king. You used to live in a palace. You used to have the throne. You used to have all the power and all the money, all the women. And now you're living like a groundhog, right? You're living like a prairie dog in the wilderness of Judah where there's not, not, not even enough water. And now if you can put yourself in your mind's eye in David's situation, ask yourself, what would I long for and desire if those were my circumstances during that time in my life? What would you long for? I think we'd go back to Maslow's hierarchy of needs you would desire actual water. You would desire actual food. You would desire safety. You would desire your house back. You would desire reconciliation and restoration in your family. You would desire that your kids weren't murderers and rapists and treachery, whatever the word is for that. That's what you would desire. But David 
You know what David's, in my opinion, David's best attribute was? It wasn't his courage, it wasn't his bravery, it wasn't his talents. You know what David's best attribute was? When David was confronted with him sin, with his own sin, he owned it. And there were these times in his life where he suddenly could see his problems. All of my problems aren't everyone else's problems. I am responsible. And so that's why we read Psalm 63 like this. A Psalm of David written when I was on the run, living like a prairie dog in the wilderness of Judah. He says, oh God, you are my God. That seems like a throwaway no-duh line. He's a Jew. What, else, what other God is he going to have beside the God of Israel? Oh God, you are my God. No. Here's what he's saying. God, you are my God. It's not this other stuff that I've been chasing. You know what my problem is? I made all these other things my God that I pursued. It's not the women, it's not the power, it's not the size of my nation, it's not, it's not anything. You are my God. That's what is the cause of my problems because I put, I was put the pursuit of everything besides you in front of you. And that's why I'm out here in this situation. And so David vows, you know what I'm going to do? I am going to seek you earnestly, early and often, consistently, constantly. My problem is I haven't been desiring the right thing. You know what I really need? More than I need you to fix my circumstances, more than I need my throne back, more than I need my son to not kill me. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh yearns for you. There's no water out here, but you are what I need. And here's, here's the cheat code. <laughs> I've seen what you've done. I've seen you forgive me. I've seen your power and your glory. I'm going to praise you forever. Why? Your chesed, your loyal love is better than life. I think what we see in Psalm 63 is a man who has hit rock bottom again and put the blame where it belongs and he has reminded himself who his God is, what he should desire, and what happens when you start desiring other things. Your love is better than life. I just love it. Even more than I need you to fix my circumstances. You know what I need? I need to need you. Graduates and everyone else who's here. I, I know what you are, what you all are, are seeking. I know what you all are desiring. Our graduates, our young people, they're going to take off from here. They're going to pursue college or the workforce, degrees, careers, spouses, families, money, houses, all this stuff. But I know what you're really looking for because we're all looking for it. 
You know what we're all looking for? We want our soul to feel like our tummy feels when we eat a good meal. You know what the word for that is? Contentment or wholeness. The Israelites in Hebrew would call it shalom. We want to feel that sense of peace, completeness, wholeness. It's contentment. That's what every single person wants. But where we mess up is we get our eyes set on all these other things that we think will make our souls feel like that. I want to feel peace, shalom, content, whole. So you know what I've got to have if I'm going to feel like that? I got to have that much money. I got to have that kind of house. I got to have that kind of career. I got to have that certain special someone. I got to have those people like me. That's the stuff I got. If I have that, I got to have this kind of party, this kind of experience, that kind of trip. That's what will make my soul feel like I want it to feel. That's what you're looking for. Me too. You want to know the bad news? I don't care what you set your sights on that you think will make you feel like that. David had it bigger, better, harder, and more of it. Better career, more acceptance, people sang songs about him, more money, more attention from the opposite gender. Had it all. And what he teaches us in Psalm 63 is it doesn't hold your shalom, your peace, your contentment. The danger is every time we pick something out in the world I think I have to have to make my soul feel the way I want it to feel, and that's not God. We're going down a dangerous road. For a few reasons. One, once we make that one thing ultimate in our lives, it becomes a, a controlling influence over our, It becomes our Lord. A woman named Becky Pippert in her book, Out of the Salt Shaker and Into the World, says it this way. She says, whatever controls us is our Lord. The person who seeks power is controlled by power. The person who seeks acceptance is controlled by acceptance. We do not control ourselves. We are controlled by the Lord of our lives. That ain't scripture, but it sure is true. As soon as I'm controlled, you can add anything else in there. If I'm controlled by money, I don't have to have money to be controlled by money. But as soon as I'm controlled by money, I will be controlled by what will make me money, not by what God says or anything else. When I'm controlled by power, whatever will give me power and influence, that's what I will do. When I'm controlled by acceptance, I'm not controlled by what God thinks of me. I'm controlled by what those people or that person thinks of me. Everybody has a Lord of their life. And it's a controlling factor. And what David teaches us in Psalm 63 is, if that Lord ain't the Lord, we're on a dangerous, dangerous road. It cannot hold our joy. It can't give us what we want it to give us. I'm convinced most people in the world 
are living chasing the wrong Lord. And it happens in one of two ways. We're all either on the uphill or downhill slope of this. Well, most of us, most people. We either have our eyes set on something or a couple things we think will make us feel like we want to feel, and we're just, we're just driven, we're, pers- we're pursuing it, we're, we just have to have it. And we never quite get it. And so we never have that peace we seek. We just never get there. Or the other half of us have gotten what we thought would make us feel the way we want to feel. And we're riddled with anxiety because we know we can lose it. Or... We're suffering through the letdown of realizing it didn't make me feel the way I wanted to feel. It can't hold my joy. You know, anxiety is always the result of placing my hope in something I know I can lose. That's why I lay awake at night. Maybe they won't like me anymore. Maybe she'll break up with me. Maybe I'll fail that test. Maybe I won't get into that college. Maybe I'll lose that job. And this is when people try God. And here's, here's the way that works. I've tried all these other ways to get this stuff that will make me feel the way, my, the way I want to feel. Maybe God will help me get those things that will make me feel the way I want to feel. And I try God for a while. Maybe if I pray the right way and do the right things and don't sin all those sins and I do these other good things, God will give me these things that will make me feel the way I want to feel. And then God doesn't come through. And then I get disillusioned with God and I cast him aside and I'm holding him accountable or I'm mad at him for not uh, making good on promises he never made. David does not say in this psalm, try God, he'll give you the stuff that will make your heart feel good. You know what David says in this psalm? God is the only thing. God is the only thing that will give you the shalom. Click me, there we go. That will give your heart peace. This is what David figured out and wrote down in Psalm 63. God didn't promise to give us the things of the world that will make us feel full. God gave us something better, better than life itself. He gave us him. He proved his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us in our place. And a contented life, number two on the, string, on the screen, comes only from putting your hope in the only thing you cannot lose, which is salvation in Christ Jesus, because it doesn't depend on you. He did what it took to win your eternal life. You just have to believe he did it. Young people, and old people too, young people who are leaving, you want, to, you want a selfish reason to put all your eggs in God's basket? To pursue Jesus Christ with your whole life? To go ahead, I want you to pursue families, careers, uh, degrees, whatever it is, but make sure that that baseline of your hierarchy of needs is the God of the universe and his son, Jesus Christ. If you want even a selfish reason to do that, it's not because God will give you all the things your heart desires. It's because only in him can you place your hopes on something you can't lose. 
He is the only guarantee you will ever be offered in this world. And that's why David, in a dry and weary land where there's not enough water and there's not enough food and I don't have the job I used to have, he realizes, oh yeah, I have my hopes in the wrong things. That's why I made the mistakes that got me out here. If I were desiring him every day and just walking with him and living for him, I wouldn't be where I am. There's one rock bottom I would have avoided. Only in Jesus Christ can you set your hopes on what you cannot lose and that can keep you buoyant even when your circumstances fall apart. There is nothing else in this world that can do that for you. Amen? I pray with me and we'll close with that song again. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for while, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us on our behalf under the punishment we deserve. He gave his life for us and then he offers to live life with us. God, help us remember to be like David in Psalm 63, where we hunger and we thirst for what we cannot lose, our Creator, our God, and the salvation He offers through Christ alone. God, show us when we are putting our hopes and our eyes on things that won't hold our hope. We might put them only on You. And we can always walk with You no matter what our circumstances into. We love you, Lord. Thank you for being the fulfillment of our hopes and giving our souls completeness. We pray that in Jesus alone. Amen. Stand and finish with us.